Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss divisions that arose within and between the jungle and drum and bass scenes in mid-90s England plus tech step. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. That means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're welcoming back Ryan Harkness to continue what some have called our interminable slog through Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. I'm just kidding about the interminable slog, actually, although several fans on Facebook and email have mocked my pronunciation of all kinds of things, so apologies in advance. Ryan, how are we doing? Ah, doing great. I'm excited for this chapter entitled War in the Jungle. I think it's our third or fourth time kind of dipping back in. The book continues to kind of break out of the jungle story and then jump back in. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe that's good for pacing, like get, let, let people have a couple other things going on. But, yeah, at certain times you kind of wish that all the jungle stuff was just laid back to back to back because we're talking about a, a period of time between like 1992 and 1997 or something like that. And we, we've split it into like four particular eras at this yeah. point. And and to me, the jungle story is really the main narrative thread of the book, just kind of like the way that the emergence of disco and then later on House Techno and Garage was kind of the main narrative thread of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, even though they covered a lot of other stuff. And Reynolds is doing the same thing. But this, to me, seems like where his real passion is, and this is really the heart of the story he's trying to tell. And this thing, this is – I'm going to be bringing up a lot of questions about – names and misnomers um, because I've been wondering what is the difference between jungle and drum and bass for 25 years haven't really worked that hard to get an answer and I've gotten several different answers you want to take a quick stab at that Sure. I feel, I feel like we do this every episode, but I'm happy to continue to, <laughs> to, to kind of reiterate it. I know that there are people who jump in and specifically listen to chapters that, that they think is interesting. So I think it's important for them as well. But the most important thing when we're talking about jungle and drum and bass is you can use them interchangeably. Most people do. Uh, if, if someone says they like jungle or they like drum and bass, uh, you can't make an inference uh, as to whether or not uh, they're speaking about one or the other because, in general, it's it's an overarching, all can all all encompassing uh, genre descriptor. Now, some people 
uh, tried to say drum and bass is on top and jungle is a subgenre of, of drum and bass, uh, more usually the ragged jungle sound, all the stuff that's a bit more, uh, a bit more reggae influenced and stuff like that. But again, this is not everybody that subscribes to, to this. For most people, drum and bass and jungle is the same thing. I kind of subscribe to, I like, uh, you know, being more specific drum and bass is kind of the more, the more tight synthy robotic stuff and jungle is the stuff where it's just break beats going real fast and and mcs screaming their heads off and the the real jump up raga style but uh but again like uh as far as terminology goes you're 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 pretty much good switching them back and forth and that's what most people do thank you thank you and for a definition of what the two of them are that are the same thing, how's this? It's dance tracks that combine sped up break beats with slowed down reggae dub super heavy bass lines. Yep, that works. All right, good, good. And now I've got more quibbling because I'm a quibbler. Um, this chapter is subheaded intelligent drum and bass versus tech step. And there's at least two problems I have with that. First off, why versus tech step when it's really a chapter about intelligent drum and bass or you should i think you should just say drum and bass versus ragged jungle not tech step it doesn't seem like that those two are in particular conflict or did i misread the whole chapter oh uh, well i just think that uh usually whenever you're talking about genre names uh it, it until you're like five ten years down the road it's it's hard to kind of look at what's going on and and say for sure how you how the naming scheme is is going to work out and i think that the general flow of things was you had jungle uh, and then Ragged Jungle comes in and becomes the dominant style. And then maybe not as a response to that. Okay, yeah, not, a, not as a response to that. Uh, you got the guys, the dark side guys, the guys who came from the hardcore breakbeat sound kind of fighting against Ragged Jungle. And then on the side, you got the Bristol guys coming in with the liquid and the intelligent drum and bass uh, kind of pushing a jazzier sound. So there's all these different kind of permeations of, of jungle happening at the same time. And, uh, they're all kind of fighting for, for the crown for, to say, what is really jungle? What is really drum and bass? And that Bristol reference makes it clear why he put the trip hop chapter where he did. He wanted to get it in there before he gets to this part, because you can't talk about the Bristol jungle producers until you talk about Tricky and Massive Attack and et cetera, et cetera, and the place um, they came from. And my encroaching senility, I'm now forgetting the name of said um, second generation Bristol DJ producer, but we'll get to him later. So if you don't know, uh, it'll be a surprise, reason to keep listening. And if you do know, you can decry my ancient ignorance and, and continue down the road looking down your nose at me. So let's let's get to this. Opening quote, Ragged Jungle equals dance music with a front person, which the major labels find easier to sell. Quote, real drum and bass is engineer's music, which is why it'll never become chart pop. That's Rob Playford of Moving Shadows Records. How did that pan out? Uh, well, you know, I think they were trying to understand what was going on you had uh you had a couple of really big raga tracks at the time like original nutta uh com coming out and just dominating the scene and blowing the roof off of things you had a really strong underground drum and bass scene you know that was basically pushing forward from 92 to 90 96 and then around maybe was it 94 uh ragged jungle takes over with a couple of really big hits and ragged jungle becomes this this massive thing so everybody that's trying to not do ragged jungle is trying to explain why they're still kind of in the underground while ragged jungle is taking over so you know these guys have a uh these guys are trying to figure it out themselves it, it's kind of a funny situation where you would you basically create a genre and then somebody else takes it and runs away with it and you're kind of left standing there going why is this not as popular as as something else yeah, and that, and that's something that happens over and over again throughout music history um, happened with punk rock when New Wave came along and, and took over. You know, if you're in the Ramones and your career is basically stalled out and you're watching The Knack writing a series of number one hits that are clearly derived from the ideas you pushed three, four years earlier. Yeah, it's it's totally maddening. And so let's let's play our first song. And this is not Ragged Jungle. This is sort of the counter to Ragged Jungle. And this is a track called Atlantis from 1993. Tell me how to pronounce this guy's name before I butcher it. LTJ Bookham. 
Book them. All right, that's what I was going to try. But after my whole roughage crew, refugee crew fiasco the other week, I'm a little gun shy. So yeah, I mean, I think buke them, uh, book them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the whole thing is, I was I was saying his name back in like 90, 97, 98 when I was just seeing him in HMV. There's nowhere to look on the internet to see if you were saying it right. So you know, a lot of people got it wrong for a really long time. Yeah, and in different regions, I expect people had different wrong pronunciations. It's just like many kink fans in America think it's Ray Davies instead of Ray Davis, which I've learned the hard way. Anyway, let's hear LTJ Bookham doing Atlantis from 1993. And when we come back, Ryan will tell us why he picked that track. LTJ Bookham's track Atlantis from 1993. Why'd you pick it? Uh, you know, if if you're looking at the reason why intelligent drum and bass or liquid drum and bass or liquid jungle, intelligent, you know, whatever, whatever uh, why back then all of a sudden it was kind of an exploding, exciting place. It was songs like Atlantis that kind of gave you a sense that there was some real depths to be plumbed here musically. And uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff kind of going on in in this kind of cachet of, of of jungle production that was that was very fresh and very new. So I, I, this is the perfect kind of track that that kind of sticks the flag in the ground. 1993, Bookham shows what what's possible and everybody else starts to run with it as a, uh, you know, holding the flag for what drum and bass could be. And as a fellow elderly rockist like myself, I shouldn't call Simon elderly. He's a little older than me, so I might be sensitive about that kind of joke. But anyway, he compares this to one of Jimi Hendrix's absolutely pivotal tracks from Electric Ladyland, a track called 1983, A Merman I Shall Come to Be, which, you know, for for old rock dudes, like that is a heavy load up the bong, put the, the headphones on and, and dig what Jimmy is laying down here. So, yeah, um, Bookham is picking up the baton in a big way and it's interesting at the beginning of the chapter you know reynolds gives the stuff it's due he he at one point calls it uh the most thrilling sound on the planet that this new art core was a breath of fresh air um you know and bookham founds a club speed with a strict no raga policy and and reynolds who is about to warn us about to start waving red flags watch out guys you're playing with dangerous territory getting serious and artsy and ambitious he has to concede that this stuff was, as Snoop Dogg would have said, the shizzle. Yeah, and I just want to touch on on the whole no raga policy. Uh, uh, I think it was the last jungle episode we kind of talked about from a from a raga jungle point of view how they felt like they were pushed out uh it, it because because of a kind of racist inference that all of the all of the the reggae influences and everything like that were bringing in the wrong crowd it was kind of more of a of an issue with the mainstream coming in and people who didn't really care about the scene coming in and ruining it for everybody more than that but raga got raga got basically painted with a brush it's like you know not not just not just thug music but like crack music and everything else like that and they got kind of pushed out now on the other side i was listening to an interview with doc scott who kind of explained the concept of speed the club that ltj bookham and fabio started where he was saying this was a place because ragged jungle had became basically become the dominant form of jungle everywhere you couldn't go out and play non-raga and not have people, you know, the the the, the renowned British uh, audience uh, with their with their willingness to throw bottles at people and stuff like that. You couldn't go out <laughs> and, and and play not raga and and just and and just basically not have people, you know, even if it's just a few people in the dance floor not new into it, they're going to let it let you know and they're going to ruin it for everybody. So they needed kind of sanctuaries, as far as Doc Scott was explaining. Like it was it was there were serious problems going on. As a promoter, I remember when you book a, a multi-genre event, you book the time slots appropriately to build up the energy and all these guys who were headliners before were getting booked, you know, the opening slots and stuff like that. And all the ragged jungle where the energy is the highest, we're getting all the peaks and stuff. So they needed to carve out a place for themselves 
And this is where you kind of understand, okay, this is another aspect. This is another angle of the story coming from the inside. They weren't trying particularly to, to, to kill, kill Raga and, and push it out. They just wanted to create a space where they were able to continue to do what they were doing, which they felt was like less of a dead end. Yeah, because su suddenly, after literal years of being actively ignored by the music press, by the legal FM radio stations, and by some of the key DJs who had built the Acid House explosion, suddenly in 94, the UK music press, the record industry, and, and stations like KISS FM are finally waking up to jungle, but it's ragged jungle that they're pushing. And it's combined with sensationalistic tabloid coverage. I know, in England, right? How crazy. And as you said, allegations of rampant crack use. And I really enjoyed some of the feedback on Facebook and an email that I've gotten. And I meant to write down names, and I apologize for those who, who contributed some really good stories from the Times. And there were multiple references to what they called rock stars. And, and rock stars doesn't mean like Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain. It means crackheads. And maybe there was a thin line there. But nonetheless, Kurt and Courtney weren't in these clubs. And there, there were allegedly some, at least, crackheads. So there was some reality to it. But the tabloids always, always get it wrong and over-exaggerate and et cetera and et cetera. But, you know... Um, Starting in oh wait I wanted there was one more quote about um, Atlantis I wanted to get and from Reynolds and this says that it showed it was possible to speed up breakbeats until the body was bypassed altogether, transforming hardcore into relaxing music. Rhythm itself became a soothing stream of ambiance. So that's a really interesting inversion of the normal order of things and Reynolds says it's kind of started in the summer of 93 that you saw the first glimpses of a new direction that you had labels like Moving Shadow and Reinforced releasing what he calls bliss drenched tracks like Omni Trio's Mystic Stepper Foul Plays Open Your Mind Four Heroes Journey into the Light uh, LTJ Bookham's Music and Atlantis so um, and of course the king Mr. Ruffage Crew himself, Goldie, comes out with a new uh, name, Namdi uh, Dance, I guess, Metalheads, which puts out Angel, which fe features live vocals from Diane Charlemagne, 150 beats per minute breaks, samples from uh, David Byrne and Brian Eno's My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, Joey Beltram-style Mintasm Terror riffs, and a bedland of sampled horns. Reynolds calls it an astonishing sound class clash of tenderness and terrorism and he clearly talked to goldie at least two times in this era and was really struck at how angry goldie was the first time he met him and how he was railing against the establishment and these djs that wouldn't play his stuff in the clubs and kiss fm who wouldn't play his records on the air but in this period goldie kind of takes a turn and the other side reaches out to him too can you tell us a little bit about that well, I mean, it, it, it's interesting, like uh, the Metalheads as a as like kind of a label, uh, it's like a, a dub plate extension of Four Heroes uh, label, just just ends up being, at first they're really aggressive, and, and you can tell that it comes from that era of hardcore breakbeat, and then they get into that more bristly sound where they really start experimenting more with uh, real instruments and jazzier sounds and soundscapes and everything else like that. And then uh, Goldie had a strict no Buyaka Buyaka uh, policy. So he was he was very much against the uh, the whole Raga sound, but he still kept a certain amount of energy in there, which I think is uh, you know Im important to me. Guys like Bookham and Roni Size maybe get a little bit too uh, a little Roni bit too Size. naval. That's hmm? our man from Bristol. Roni yeah, Size yeah. is the guy's name I was blanking on a minute ago. Oh, there oh, you go, there you yeah. go. Both both of them can get a little bit too navel gazy or maybe a little bit too atmospheric. But but Goldie, I think, uh, was trying to push jungle drum and bass forward in, in, in a way that was uh, that was still energetic and cool so he didn't he didn't lose the idea that the dancer is kind of the key the key person in the equation you know yep and let's go ahead and take our next cue and this is Goldie timeless from 1995.
And that was Goldie's 1995 track, Timeless. Pretty obvious why you picked that one. I don't think we need to, to grill you on that. But I do have a question. If Goldie's so underground and so bitter and so resentful against the whole British music establishment, why did old kid Nate end up with a couple of Goldie CDs in his collection? <laughs> the yeah, your dog wants to know too, right? <laughs> he sure does. I, I mean, uh, it's just one of those things that that, that kind of happens. Uh, Goldie positioned; it was a very ambitious, very uh, smart, business-oriented guy with a really keen sense of branding. And uh, you know, he never he never sold out his ideals. Uh, he just pushed the push forward with them. And uh, you know, there there was an, an irony that came up a bit later where. I think they were they were using Timeless on Virgin Aircrafts as like the uh, the music that you listen to before takeoff to calm down uh, people people waiting in the plane. So there there's certainly a point where he crossed over big. <laughs> yep. And and there's a quote. One of the guys uh, that he that was a target of his ire was uh, Pete Tong, who was Radio One's leading dance music DJ, who also did A and R for London Records Dance Imprint. And in 1993, Pete Tong had this to say about Breakbeat House. To be honest, the Breakbeat House and Hardcore just drives me to despair, and I'd rather give up than play this. The couple of thousand that still exist for what I call the rave audience, I just don't want to cater to them. I'll stand in front of anyone and say it. I think Hardcore is boring, uninventive, and not musically going anywhere. Plus, I don't think it's selling records anymore. When I say dead, I mean it's no longer inventive, and it's gone up its own arse. It's had a good few years, but now it's time for it to give up. And within a year, Pete Tong signs Goldie and DJ Crystal to a record label. And there's a famous moment when the two of them embrace on the dance floor there at Bookham Speed Club. It just goes to show you how far the music uh, has changed, like uh, just from uh, hardcore breakbeat to dark side into proto jungle into uh, the more intelligent and liquid stuff i mean uh it's you know pete tong kind of went commercial slowed down the bpm uh, it makes it's not surprising to me that that some of the more sophisticated kind of bristol influence sounds would have won him back over because that was where the experimental interesting stuff was was coming from and it was more more understandable to people i think as well like uh, as far as an armchair listen so plus money talks am i right am i right it's true it's true. It's true. And so one other uh, artist that we should mention that Reynolds talks about quite a bit in this period is Omnitrio, which isn't even a trio. It's one dude, Rob High. Hey, what, sorry. Apologies to Rob. But who is in his mid-30s at this point, Reynolds calls him a studio wizard. He was a guy who grew up on a strictly avant-garde diet. He grew up on post-punk like Per Ubu and the pop group from Bristol, The Fall, also Miles Davis's early 70s records. And if you haven't checked that st stuff out, I highly recommend it. Things like Jack Johnson and On the Corner, uh, King Tubby's more outre dub experiments, and, and what Reynolds calls the Krautrock Triumvirate. And it's not Kraftwerk, it's Can, Faust, and Noy, the uh, former rhythm section to Kraftwerk. And then he starts out in an avant-funk band, The Truth Club, Gets turned on to House in 89. It loves Derek May, early Warp Records, The Orbital. He's even more excited by early hardcore breakup. And when the split comes in 91, the first time that, quote, intelligent gets thrown around, when intelligent techno and ambient and trance split away from hardcore breakbeat, Mr. Hay couldn't, quote, abandon the breakbeats. And I got to call you out on this one. Reynolds says he avoided, thereby avoided the cul-de-sac of trance. Are you going to sit still for that? Ah, uh, you know, I, I, I'm generally okay with it. Like, there's there's a whole bunch of cul-de-sacs that, that happen in dance music where, I mean, to a certain degree, genres don't become genres until they're codified into a specific sound. And trance got locked into a couple of different sounds over the years. And uh, definitely when this book was written, it was in a rut and it was in a cul-de-sac. So uh, I'm willing to accept that. Fair enough. Although that did set my dog off into a frenzy. I had it muted. Uh, he's still going. I can't can't stop him now. But so uh, Mr. Omnitrio sticks with it. And by volume three, his EP volume two for Moving Shadow, 
which features stronger Mystic Stepper, quote, bridges the gap between dark side and ambient jungle. And then in 1994's volume three, four and five, reveals him as, quote, the John Barry of hardcore. And I'm not going to pretend I didn't have to Google that, but that's the guy who wrote the James Bond theme. Pretty yeah, epic J- stuff. John Barry uh, has done a bunch of stuff. He did the soundtrack to Dances with Wolves. was one of my favorite. Yeah, epic, famous, uh, very prolific uh, composer. So it's it's high praise. And I think well-earned because, um, you know, his track Renegade Snares is just absolutely legendary. Uh, Reynolds calls it Hayes' all-time masterpiece. Why don't you sing the virtues of Omni Trio while I toddle off and let this effing dog out the door? <laughs> yeah, well, Moving Shadow definitely uh, definitely were, were, were key in, in picking those tracks that weren't just boilerplate, boring, atmospheric uh, navel gazers and, and were actually kind of build, building the scene towards something. And, uh, you know, even for people who didn't like that particular sound that thought maybe it was a little bit less uh not not dance floor friendly enough i feel like uh moving shadow found that sweet spot in between making things uh, i hate this term a little bit more uh, intelligent and this is this is where the big debate comes about intelligent drum and bass and that word intelligent in a past episode i kind of mentioned the fact that people like junglists don't even really mind too much when you when you say intelligent drum and bass because they know exactly what you're talking about it it's not considered a slur but but going back and listening to some interview with guys like four hero when when whenever when when that when that name came up uh, they very clearly took took offense to it and they they took it as a bit of a racial rebuke as well and they noted that a lot of the people who were quote unquote making intelligent drum and bass just happened to be white so there there was there was more of a uh, a contentious touch to the to the intelligent drum and bass movement and especially since the last time we heard this term intelligent it was it was popping up um in the quote unquote intelligent uh, techno debate of 91 and even though there obviously were many african-american artists involved in the forefront of that some said they were a little bougie and and there was sort of a class tension there between techno and the and you know the elite uh europhiles of techno and the and the more sweaty uh down-to-earth house creators of chicago going back to the beginning so yeah a lot of complicated politics we we can't get in the middle of we can only watch from our limited white guy far away perspective but it's very interesting to see and try to call him like we see him and be fair um not that we're the referees or arbiters it's up to everybody to decide for themselves how about yeah, that? yeah i thought it was covering. good kind of getting that that first uh that primary source and and kind of hearing uh like the, the amount of podcasts i've been listening side podcasts with uh, other artists and stuff and just getting getting to hear what they thought about it in the beginning i think that's you know uh, i i have a, a perspective being in Canada very far away from everything around 96 and it's obviously very different from the guys who were in the middle of it as these these things were being codified and people were being pushed in and pushed out of the scene based on what they're being played what they're playing and and what their what their label is so it's obviously a very uh, tumultuous time for everyone indeed and let's hear a little break take a little break and hear from our sponsors hopefully it won't be so tumultuous With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. And you can't talk about Omnitrio without talking about his cohorts and remixers, Foul Play, who are also with Moving Shadows. And this is Stephen Brad, Bradshaw, John Morrow, and Steve Gurley. I think Gurley ends up quitting later on, but uh, starts out as a trio. Reynolds says in 1992, they, quote, first weirded up the private radio airwaves with 92's dubbing you and survival, which Reynolds says has the most tremulous Morse code oscillator riff of all time. Your mileage may vary, but I checked it out. and It's definitely a cool track. Um, they made their mark with their own volume three and their remix EPs, Open Your Mind, and um, which Reynolds says is his favorite hardcore track ever. And he also sings the praises of the equally ravishing Finest Illusion and says that they shined a light at the end of the Dark Side Tunnel. Thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's always cool to hear those tracks that bridge from from kind of one sound to another. And and one of the one of the fun parts about this podcast is getting to hear those proto tracks and those those tracks that that mark a shift in 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 the the, the sound and the way that uh, the direction that a genre is going. So. And speaking of proto tracks, there was one we skipped over because Reynolds didn't mention it, but then going back and reading other histories of this era gets talked about quite a bit. And that's one by DJ Carl Cox. And, you know, I've got to apologize. I've been confusing him with Carl Craig from Detroit <laughs> the entire time. I think I watched the entire movie about Carl Cox one evening. I might have been a bit in my cups and literally thought he was Carl Craig the entire time. So I'm still trying to untangle that that whole mess in my head. But it was one of the first tracks to use the amen break why did we not talk about it uh i mean the only thing i can think of is that it's uh it's obscure i mean the, the fact that he did it so early but it just kind of came and went and nobody noticed it uh, and and i bet you music history is littered with or rather uh, outside of music history there are tracks all over the place that did it first that that were just never that were just like they went and they, there's like a, a a drop in the pond with barely a ripple and that was one of the things with uh carl cox and some of his early productions he's never been known uh too much as a producer and uh his early stuff uh you know uh, was never has doesn't really get the the a lot of respect or attention or anything else like that so i figure it's no different than say where tiesto and ferry corsten were, were were producing gabber in their early days but it doesn't mean that what they were producing was uh was notable or 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 cutting edge or anything else like that well i'll give i'll give carl cox the all the praise for for being an early amen adapter or adopter but uh you know if if nobody was 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 nobody noticed then then what do you do yeah and the, the track i want you parentheses forever not i want you she's so heavy by the beatles but i want you parentheses forever was the carl cox track in question and yeah it's one of those things the guy's a very famous and successful great dj he did this track that's clearly seemingly historically significant so just really uh for a moment it made me almost doubt our man simon reynolds our guide through this wilderness so whew, glad i don't have to throw virgil out while we're still deep in the inferno that's a dante reference for those of you uneducated <laughs> yokels out there anyway let's go back to goldie a little bit because because um reynolds dives a little bit deeper into his background and he's um from the midlands biracial child uh, absentee jamaican father uh, anglo english mother he's a prime mover in the early uk hip-hop scene he even went to new york to participate in a bbc documentary on graffiti artists because that's how he started along with uh Banksy, maybe, and so, some others. In the late 80s, he's hanging out with Massive Attack, Nellie Hooper, and Soul to Soul. Nellie Hooper, that nexus between those and also the connection with Banksy, possibly. Um, he makes some trip hop with a guy named Howie B. Then he gets swept up in rave culture. Fabio and Groove Rider at Rage, and we've been talking about Fabio at Speed, but they originally start Jungle at Rage. And these are the guys who are speeding up the plus eight kings of the breakbeats. And if I have a serious beef with Reynolds, who's great and we love him, it's that I would like to see this history center the DJs a little bit more because I really feel like the clubs are the cauldrons where this stuff is forged and that the producers are producing for the DJs and that the DJs are frankly just higher up on the food chain at this point than the producers. Am I wrong about that? No, I mean uh, it was it was the DJs and the knights that that created the scenes and created the and reflected the culture out outwards. Uh, without uh, without rage and Fabio and Groove Rider doing uh, just just regularly playing all night and finding those records and speeding them up and having a good reaction and getting more of them and playing uh, those and then people are producing that specific sound the 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 whole repeating circle uh that that eventually spins out into uh, a whole healthy underground scene would would never have happened i think virtuous cycle is the term you were there you go there, there you go there you go and so then goldie joins up with reinforced and forms the inf infamous and often mispronounced roughage crew which i think anybody would read as refugee crew but you know <laughs> as i've been told that's incorrect anyway they do menace we talked about that in previous episode then he produces timeless his 22 minute uh, magnum opus uh, rob playford of moving shadow is his engineer and quote perfect interface and at the same time, while he's working on the Timeless album, I think after the original track, title track dropped before the album hit, Four Hero drops Parallel Universe, and a guy called Gerald 
who uh, the the Mancunian we have not heard from since way back in one of our first couple episodes talking about Madchester. Um, he drops an album called Black Secret Technology that I went to Bandcamp and bought because it's not on the streaming services, but well worth your time. Reynolds says both of these are examples of what he sees as jungle. And I guess a guy called Gerald has evolved with the times and become a junglist himself. But that these are both what he would call styles of Afrofuturism. And this is the style that people like Sun Ra, Jimi Hendrix, George Clinton of P-Funk, uh, Derek May of the Belleville Three and others, you know, basically anytime you get a black guy who's into sci-fi or futurism, they call it Afrofuturism. And um, he also says that Four Hero was kind of a digitized update of Herbie Hancock or Weather Report's Jazz Fusion. And I love this because rock critics hate Jazz Fusion and have written it out of the history completely. And I love seeing these things that will not die, that keep popping their head up. That to me tells to that tells me that a genre had something going for it. And honestly, if you listen to those Miles Davis albums from the early 70s, it kills like um or john mclaughlin's mahavishnu orchestra huge influence on black flag so this is stuff near and dear to my heart kinda although i was i mean i'm never i'm not gonna pretend i'm a big jazz fusion fan but anyway i like i like rooting for the underdog a little bit oh i mean there's so many times where where a scene is completely written off because it didn't get you know enough record sales or whatever else like that and i think that's a a completely backwards way of, of looking at things you know sometimes sometimes it's the underground scenes that are underappreciated which is which is where the real creativity comes from and it influences someone else and uh, it never really gets the credit that it that it deserves but it was there and it was important to the to the people and i'm going to have to i've let you have enough rope now i'm going to hang you because fusion actually sold tons of records for jazz it just was wasn't popular with the critics and they outlasted it and or at least managed to keep writing about it or not writing about it into the 80s so anyway but for the most part your point is correct but yeah fusion sold mad records weather report i think some of them even had gold and platinum albums but uh, then he gets a whole thing about how four hero is kind of the mystical utopian side of afrofuturism whereas a guy called gerald's black secret technology uh is more focused on the quote ever escalating technological struggle between control and anarchy and um, then he gets into this sort of bigger riff about jungle and its place and its meaning and ultimately sort of concludes that quote jungle is a subculture focused on abusing technology rather than being abused by it thoughts uh i i mean i guess i guess at the time what was going on with the baselines and everything else like that uh, feel, feels like you're abusing the technology and everything but i mean to a certain degree simon reynolds gets pretty poetic when it comes to how he dissects music sometimes and i have a hard time uh, kind of keeping up or, or getting onto that same level myself so kind of when he talks about kind of the the militarism of the jungle scene or if he talks about you know uh, this music's place within the within the the the, the world of technology i have a bit of a hard time having having opinions one way or another or another you know <laughs> yep yep I, I i feel you i'm trying to keep up myself um but let's go ahead and hear our next song this is nasty habits shadow boxing from 1996 why'd you pick this one uh, again it's that it's one of those tracks where you say okay this is the beginning of where jungle is starting to move somewhere else you had that bristol sound that liquid sound uh and now all of a sudden this one here is is a track that starts to introduce those more rumbling bass lines that uh that basically come to take over jungle and still make the foundation of what it is today and let's hear it nasty habits shadow boxing <laughs> Nasty Habits Shadowboxing, but we're not quite ready to talk about uh, Tech Step yet because Reynolds is going to have to take these naughty fellas to the woodshed, and they mostly were fellas, um, to warn of the perils of armchair jungle. You knew this was coming. We already know Reynolds has planted his flag. He's on the side of the underground. He's on the side of the outcasts. He's on the side of the not critically acclaimed. He's on the side of the rebels and outliers. And 
He says that Timeless is Goldie's Sgt. Peppers, obviously returning to the Beatles' 1967 masterpiece. But he says it's 50% genre-building brilliance and 50% ill-advised attempts to prove his versatility. Ouch! You think that's fair? Uh, you know, at certain points it does kind of uh, – I, I mean, again, it, it really depends. I, I'm – Goldie obviously did what he wanted to do, and I'm not going to say that it was wrong. I think Timeless is is generally great, um, but uh, there, there's no denying that somebody could kind of just feel like it's a bit trite nowadays, I suppose. But at the time, like again, at the time it was so exciting and different. I'm not super into uh, a lot of the the more liquidy stuff, but the first time I heard it, I was blown away. So maybe maybe that's a little bit of looking back with. Uh, you know, with with the future already in hand, dismissing what came before because it seems old. Maybe, although I think Reynolds is dismissing it at the time because he's seen this particular thing. But I also find, and I think there's obviously points to be made. I think anytime somebody attacks an artist, even if it's totally their own head and has nothing to do with the artist, that's legit. It's triggering these responses in people. And so I try to cover the controversy <laughs> just like they do at our fine uh, media established, corporate media establishments. But at the same time, all of this stuff that Reynolds so persistently disses as a bad idea and you know he says that on timeless when goldie's collaborating with drum and bass partners the results are astonishing but when he quote ropes in luminaries from the jazz world like steve williamson cleveland watkins justina curtis lorna harris the results are embarrassing i don't hear that at all i dug that album back in the day i listened to it again i still dig it there's still fans who like that stuff in particular and it's kind of triggered a boom in the uk jazz scene so Reynolds is fighting the good fight. He's fighting his side, but he didn't win. He didn't kill the other side. <laughs> like it's, there's no there's no triumph. Triumph. Like I see Reynolds as somebody who's in the middle of the yin yang sign, telling you know, hey, my side is the right side, and that other side is about to shrink and die and go away. And anybody who's seen a yin yang sign knows, no, you can, you gotta have the one and the other. You can't have the yin without the yang, and the two just keep spinning around in circles. So I think there's kind of a timeless. Um, aspect to these fights, just like so many of our other cultural fights. Um, but he does talk about a period in which some of these intelligent DMB producers are kind of going up their ass and, and they're doing things like self consciously abandoning their technology and going back to retro analog synths and sequencers, aiming for a Detroit Techno 1.0 type sound. And Reynolds points out, when a genre starts to think of itself as, quote, intelligent, that's usually a warning sign. It's on the verge of losing its edge. And I think you can't argue, and it's also, I think, consistently true that younger musicians are more edgy, more revolutionary than the older ones. And we see this pattern over and over and over again, whether it's somebody like Goldie going from the outraged outsider to hugging Pete Tong on the dance floor to having big selling albums and being an international celebrity to the extent that even old kid Nate in Texas is aware of him and buying his stuff. Um, compare that to like a young Johnny Rotten morphing into a guy who's a, you know, one of England's most beloved uh, advertising, you know, uh, sales guys. And he hasn't gone full Bill Cosby yet. <laughs> Hopefully he won't, but he has become a big Trumper and everything else. So it's just these kind of cycles that, that happen. Yeah, but, it's, it is the, the direction of the of the music too. It's like uh, at that point you had you had some drum and bass guys. I mean, Four Hero kind of uh, because of his musicality and because he has the the ability to, he starts using a lot more real instruments, not just uh, you know analog synth and sequencers. He goes right into uh, there was a trend at the time. Uh, Adam F had a track called Circles, which is amazing, but it has this uh, this this real life uh, like tall bass. Uh, sound and and that started this trend where all of a sudden okay well the bass and drum and bass like, should be real otherwise what are you even doing and it's like these are the movements where yeah they're not particularly bad I think the sound is great but when you're looking when you're looking in terms of history uh, which one leads to one of those infamous cul-de-sacs and which one leads out into the ocean of uh, possibility uh, the, the 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 real instrumental element of drum and bass was uh, was was kind of something that was promising but didn't end up yielding as much fruit as when people started, you know, taking more from trance and techno and uh, taking synthesizers and creating really insane bass lines with, with, with that hardware. 
Sorry, and it's interesting to compare with what was going on hip in hip hop around the same time because you had groups like the Underground Kings here in Texas, who you know Pimp C was using more and more real instruments in the studio, and you could argue that that leads to Outkast and um, the Goody Mob and all kinds of of these so- dirty South rappers that that do successfully mix real instruments and do all kinds of creative things. And somebody like Outkast can then make an attempt to be the Beatles, not just of hip hop, but of all pop music and put out an album where they do every kind of music, et cetera, et cetera. But hip hop's a little bit more of a mature form by this point. And EDM is just about a decade younger. And so I think I think you might be right that when EDM goes back into more of what it is, more breakbeats, more technology, you know, pile that on and not water it down with with more traditional instruments. And another warning flag is guys like Bookham and Fotech and Alex Reese start singing the praises of Carl Craig and the Black Dog and Derek May. But Reynolds, of course, has to remind him what Derek May had to say about breakbeat hardcore back in 92, that he called it a Frankenstein monster that's out of control, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and, who, is it, who is it in the Bible that denied Jesus three times? It seems like Simon Reynolds a, keeps, on, keeps on bringing up these people and be like, you didn't like it when it was hardcore breakbeat. So you don't get to say shit about it now that it's kind of coming into its more intelligent, like uh, sophomore efforts. And that would be old St. Peter, who some believe is holding the keys to heaven. So, uh, you know, Reynolds might need to forgive and forget on that <laughs> if that's a precedent, precedent he's going to be citing. Um, and it's funny, like when he tries to be fair, he says things like, not all fusion jungle was an unmitigated calamity. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Reynolds with his infamous soft touch. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I'm sure groups that he cites like the Easy Rollers and Hidden Agenda are really comforted by that. Like, uh, hey, mom, mom, I'm in a book. <laughs> I'm not an unmitigated calamity, unlike my friends. Um, but then he says, yeah, that others honed in on the essence of jungle, the breakbeat science, the ba- bass mutation, the sampledelica, people like DJSS, Ascend slash Dead, Dread, who we've been hearing about through this whole era, Deep Blue, Aphrodite, DJ Hype, another critical DJ in this era, uh, Ray Keith of Renegade, um, and then Ronnie Size and DJ Die of Bristol that, that he cites in this. When you cited them on the other side, so I think things mayhaps are a bit complicated. Uh, well, I mean... Ronnie Size and DJ Die have a bit of a minimalistic sound that's that's a, a bit harsher than than say a lot of the other 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 kind of more jazzy. I, I don't I don't know. It's hard to say because guys sit on both sides. Like even Goldie Goldie was sitting on on a certain side, really pushing a a, a more kind of uh, funk infused sound, and then he switched over. And Ronnie Size and DJ Die they started out making making some some really cool jazz and funk fusion drum and bass, uh, and then they 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 built outwards from that, and they started experimenting with more minimalist drum uh, drum heavy stuff. So you know, guys artists have multitudes within them. Roni Size, most famously, though, was, was yeah, a, a big pusher of the Bristol jazzy kind of drum and bass sound, though. But didn't veer over into the dreaded acid jazz, which we discussed last time. But let's drop our next track, and this is Opticals, Shape the Future, which you described as Thus Tech Step is Born. Tell us a little bit about this one. Oh, just as far as, uh, you know, Ed Rush and Optical being two of the granddaddies of, 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 of Tech Step and just, uh, you know, giving themselves over to the robots completely. Uh, this is, you know, the opposite of the Ragged Jungle, which has a much more kind of everything coming from nature kind of sound to it. All of a sudden, this one here sounds like what a, what an alien would come down and, and, and play back is some kind of junglistic whale song. And let's hear it. Optical, shape the future.
And before we get into the details on TechStep, let's talk about what Reynolds has to say about 1995. He calls it, quote, the year of Jungle's mainstream breakthrough saw Jungle torn every which way in conflict between two rival modes of blackness, the elegant urbanity of fusion, garage, jazz, funk, quiet storm, those are historical antecedents, versus roughneck tribalism, parentheses, dub, raga, hip-hop, electro. It's a battle of gentrification versus ghetto-centricity, crossover versus undergroundism. And you've got people on one side like Reese, Fotek, and Bookham against those who wanted Jungle to sound more like itself. The idea of Jungle, and meanwhile, the idea of Jungle as eat up frisky fun of eat up frisky fun quake seemed to have dropped away altogether. And then he tells the story of going to a club and seeing some of this tech step stuff happen um, in '96, and uh, I think it's the. AWOL in Islington, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing all that again, it's, it's in the Murky Paradise Club, had been the hardcore club in 1993, especially after the demise of Rage. People like DJ Randall, DJ Mickey Finn, Kenny Ken, Darren Jay had pushed the music to new heights of rough cut intensity. But late 95, it moves to the SW1 Club in Victoria. Got to mention that AWOL doesn't stand for Absent Without Leave, it stands for A Way of Life, and that refers to Jungle as A Way of Life. Goldie, meanwhile, had rival Sunday sessions at the Blue Note, his metalhead sessions at the Blue Note. There was also the Club UN and Inner Sense at the Laser Dome. This is when he gets into the talk about the militaristic imagery. But then he talks about tech stuff, and this is where he goes out and sees the stuff. Um, you mentioned Ed Rush, a DJ and producer. Uh, Trace is one of his cohorts. Uh, there's the engineer Nico at the No U-Turn label, and that the message of no u-turn is there's no turning back we're in this technological trap and we're just going to go with it and push this technological arms race that um doc scott and others had talked about kind it's of funny these guys, these guys were very uncertain as to whether or not what they were doing was going to work uh uh, you, you had you had the guys that were doing the uh, the Sunday sessions, kind of wondering if anybody was going to show up for it because again, Raga was so was so big, and the response was could be really bad for a lot of these guys that were were experimenting. Uh, I think there was a, a crust track called Warhead that we almost included as a sample uh, on the, on this episode, and Crust was talking about how for like like six to nine months, every time he would play Warhead, it would just people would get actually like physically angry and uh, w with him about it and now it's it's considered one of those classics so it it really goes to show you that uh the, all scenes have these break aparts i mean trance broke into there was the club trance and there was the progressive trance and you know if you liked one or the other you didn't go to the other one but i mean it's it wasn't a situation i, I feel as vitriolic as jungle where everybody was trying to claim the mantle of what it really was and and it really felt like it was a, a, you know, there can only be one kind of vibe about it where, where, you know, you're trying to Highlander it and, and make sure your, your iteration of what jungle is, is what, what went forward and prospered. But fortunately, there can be more than one. So the old, there can be only one thing wasn't true. And Reynolds, I think, gets his finger on this when he compares Tech Step to sort of an update in the aggression of the sound that's comparable to the change from 60s garage punk like the seeds or the sandels or the even the mc5 and the stooges and 70s punk with you know uh, the sex pistols and the clash and the buzzcocks etc that insofar as it's not a simple back to basics maneuver but an isolation and intensification of the most aggressive non r&b elements in its precursor and he also says that they deliberately um, re-emphasize the influence of Belgian brutalism in this and that we're kind of reminding everybody that European influences had been part of the mix. It wasn't just a mix of hip-hop elements and um, reggae dub elements. It was also included, you know, state-of-the-art circa 90, 92 Belgian brutalism and even into GABA. So, yeah, and there was a, a kind of a, a sh an offshoot that never really caught on because it was actually just kind of swall largely swallowed up by the overall scene. But like uh, very briefly, there was kind of a trance and bass movement because they were, you know, there were producers out there that were sticking all those uh, kind of Belgian stabs in there and, and using some big riffs that weren't bass lines. And, and for a while, they kind of labeled that trance and bass and it was its own thing. And then it just kind of got toned down and swallowed up and, and now is just part of the overall, you know, tech steps slash drum and bass uh, scene. 
Yeah, not every music genre goes on to become, you know, a, a, a long-term genre. That doesn't mean it's invalid or whatever, but it just didn't didn't become the dominant. I mean, in this way, it almost became so ubiquitous that it just like kind of became drum and bass in general. Like it wasn't, it didn't need a, another name because people weren't getting angry when they came out for drum and bass and then they heard like, you know, a, a Juno synth line in their, their drum and bass or what, 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 this isn't real drum and bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that fight, nobody wanted to have that fight. So, so they lost by winning, I guess, is one way to put it. And yeah, Tech Step is one of these things. He got my attention with the the punk comparison, and then he really had me locked in with, you know, that saying that no U-turn records accentuated the quote noise and noise elements, the headbanger riffs and mid-frequency blare. Uh, they were feeding bass riffs through guitar distortion pedals and other batteries of effects. They shunned the frisky fluency. Again, this is Reynolds of Jazzy Jungle's breakbeats in favor of reductive simplicity and rigor. The breakbeats were still at 160 60 and rising beats per minute but it feels slower because of the emphasis on the 80 beats per minute half step and doc scott who's been somebody we've been talking about throughout this period his track drums 95 is one of the key things and so this step term we've got tech step this is the first time this shows up but we're going to have a whole bunch of other steps culminating in the infamous dubstep which i don't know enough not to like but all the young people seem to be embarrassed by it but anyway tell us what is step why does it come here and is it the same thing we're hearing throughout all these other steps that are going to come along well it comes from the idea that that you know, music, even breakbeat, is is pretty much all four four. So, uh, in uh, typically that means uh, in typical jungle, you have you have kind of a kick or you have an important uh, part of the break on each of the four notes. Boom, 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 and then tech step. Or as soon as you step it, you're halving it, so it's boom, boom. Boom, maybe with, you know, like a tss, with a snare that sounds like shit or not. And so all of a sudden you have all this jungle that's coming out that might technically be one, you know, 180, but is actually kind of more you can dance to it at a 90 speed because it's actually kind of going text. It's going on a step. Very interesting. And, and uh, I've got a, a musical friend who's way into Cuban music and Congolese polyrhythms and things like that. And uh, he's trying to catch up on EDM too. And half step is one of those things I totally introduced him to because it's that polyrhythm thing. And it's really cool. And especially for me, when you've got a music that's described as quote, verging on GABA or a sped up update of the Swans, which was a early eighties or mid eighties, um, hardcore noise band from a ill-named genre called sub subgenre of hardcore punk called at the time the pig fucker scene <laughs> i don't know how that didn't catch on but it included bands like the swans pussy galore big black the butthole surfers sonic youth etc anyway that was my stuff and if you've ever heard the early swans through a big club sound system it is just this raging roaring slow bass heavy uh angry stuff but before we wrap let's recap some of Reynolds' attempts to sum up jungle and, and get into this meaning stuff that has us both scratching our heads. And he says that jungle is rave music after the death of the rave ethos. The disenchanted ravers formed the happy hardcore scene and opted out of jungle. They just kept pretending that the stuff was still going on and, and kind of had this forced festivity, you might say, of happy hardcore, which also has lasted and gone on to form all kinds of subgenres. So that was a valid uh, line to pursue. But meanwhile, Jungle reflected a reality where happy hardcore was running away from reality and just let's stay in the rave bubble. Jungle reflected a reality, quote, constituted by late capitalist economic instability, institutionalized racism, and increased surveillance and harassment of youth by police. And I got to hand this to Reynolds because he wrote this stuff more than 20, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I'm a smarty pants and I wasn't using terms like late capitalist or institutionalized racism um, until just a few years ago. So he was way ahead of me on picking up this on stuff like this. And obviously artists like Goldie who are living the black youth or mixed race youth experience in Britain in this racist uh, dynamic with – the 
after effects of Thatcher. This is the the period that seemed like a good idea at the time, kind of Britain's analog to the Clinton era. They're having the Blair, Tony Blair's New Labor, and you know Oasis and the whole Britpop thing, and everything's fine and dandy. Uh, we're just going to go along with Thatcher's policies and sail off into the sunset, and I'll be rich uh, and famous. But <laughs> you know, the 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 kids that were kind of on under the heel of those boots uh, had a different perspective on it, and were trying to warn the rest of us about what was coming down. Um, so yeah, there says, was there was uh, definitely a generally there was definitely a general vibe of this here is concrete jungle music. This is this is our, our urban story, and that was a big reason why Goldie was kind of so against some of the more jump up, just uh, over over the top uh, gangsta style raga music. Is that he felt like it was an important thing that it had to reflect, uh, you know, maybe not the ideals of what was going on, but at least the reality of it. In, in a lot of ways, and that's why it wasn't into that Buyaka sound. Yeah, and, and I think there was a cultural clash. That's Maybe we can see it because we have remove of distance and time to have some perspective, but it seems like just looking at it from the outside from 20 years later, that there was probably also a culture clash between people who were coming straight out of the um, blues party's reggae sound system scene that had gotten into jungle without going through rave versus those who had gone through rave like Goldie, but wanted to pull it in a blacker direction. So there's kind of a tension between, you know, that, that alliance was kind of the secret sauce of jungle, but at the same time, it's, it's, uh, the tension within jungle. And so, so they, they had that out and kind of split the community. And I loved this, uh, other quote that Reynolds had, he said, jungle is an education in anxiety. And as Freud tells us, anxiety is a defense mechanism or, or, as noted psychologist uh, Charles Manson used to say, uh, fear is awareness, as he terrorized his drug-addled followers, <laughs> persuaded <laughs> them to murder people. But that's something that stuck with me ever since I was a kid who was terrified of the Manson family coming to my house and killing me and my family in the middle of the night. Fear is awareness, and it'll keep you up all night, but it'll also sometimes warn you when a burglar is coming that you might have missed had you been asleep. And he, he sums it up with, jungle is the living death of rave, the sound of living with and living through the dream's demise. I think that's why Reynolds has been so focused on it. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, having come from Canada, we experienced jungle very differently. I didn't get to live through the uh, the evolution from from uh, a happier, more avenant, uh, hardcore scene into jungle. But you know, over in Canada, jungle was just uh, the second room, and it was always going off. And there wasn't. It didn't seem like there was as big of a difference as there was maybe in the UK, where everybody uh, kind of reflected back this this cool. Like uh, we weren't as cool about it over in Canada. We didn't have as many of the the big uh, divides and we didn't have as many issues with ragged jungle going off the rails and, and becoming like a big uh, uh, such a big thing that it became a problem for the scene so you know uh, Simon Reynolds says at the beginning everybody has a story this is his uh, I'm never going to disagree with him on on most things because he obviously thinks about it so much but it's uh, it's it's a narrative that he's that, that he's created for, for this chapter that doesn't quite lay over the whole world and you know the different jungle scenes that i've experienced but i can definitely see where he's coming from in the context of history yeah and everybody knows you canadians are awfully nice so you know um that that is what it is and so that's it for this week's uh, discussion of simon reynolds energy flash a journey through rave music and dance culture and I haven't quite decided. Uh, the next chapter is Digital Psychedelia, and the chapter after that is Fuck Dance, Let's Art. Do we want to combine those two into one week? Yeah, I think they're pretty short chapters, so. Okay, so we'll be covering uh, – we're going to get artsy and crazy next week. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We'll catch you next time. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter – at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss the 90s post-rave, post-rock, post-rap, artsy scenes like Billion in New York, Drill and Bass in the UK, and Germany's digital hardcore scene. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 